welcome to the bookcase and happy Thanksgiving. I hope that you are with family and enjoying the holiday. I am Kate Gibson. And I'm Charlie Gibson. And we are posting this or dropping it, as they say, in podcast land on Thursday, Thanksgiving Day. So we hope you're having a good Thanksgiving if you happen to be taking some time to listen to it on Thanksgiving Day or that you had a good Thanksgiving Day if you listen to this down the pike. But we have a program that we think is extraordinarily appropriate for this day. A bookstore owner who sells what, Kate? Nothing but cookbooks. Celia Sack runs Omnivore Books in San Francisco, and she's a collector of antique cookbooks, which until I met Celia, I didn't really know was a thing. Although, of course, it makes sense that it's a thing, because in some ways, cookbooks are greater representations of history than historical documents because they pass through generations of hands and people write in margins. And it turns out it's a much more colorful world than I had anticipated. She talks not only about how to sell cookbooks and people who buy them, but also how they get treasured and how they become family artifacts in effect. And then you have the notes jotted in them by your grandmother or by your cousin who gave you the book or whatever, and that it allows you to have a sort of two-way conversation with the cookbook author, something that you can't do really if you're just taking your recipes offline. And she makes a very good point that to take a recipe from the internet is simply to take a recipe. But, and that's like, well, I let her say it. It's like buying a single song from an artist instead of buying the whole album. But she says it much better than I do. (laughs) Anyway, people are thinking about food on this Thanksgiving day. So to talk to a bookstore owner who has such a rich history in cookbooks and in cooking, Celia Sack from the Omnivore Bookstore in San Francisco, it was a real treat. And she has some wonderful stories and even better Kate, we got to talk a little bit about Julia. Julia Child. There isn't anybody in that world who wasn't touched by her incredible talent and influence. She and I had a dinner together with some other Good Morning America people in Boston once at Legal Seafood. And her husband, Paul, was there. And Paul was in his declining years. He was really sort of gone. And Julia had to cut his meat for him. And you couldn't really make conversation, although I tried. And then they, Julia and Paul left a little early because he just could, you know, he would get tired out. As they were putting on their coats, I just, again, to try to reach out, I said, Paul, you and I have something in common. And he sort of quizzical look came on his face. And I said, I'm also in love with your wife. And, <laughs> and his face lit up. And it was the first spark of recognition I got. And he said, that's okay, lots of people. And, and uh, it was just charming. Uh, and they, of course, he was to some extent responsible for her career in cooking as they'd started in Paris during World War II. Anyway, Celia Sack is the bookstore owner. Uh, no author this time, just the bookstore owner in San Francisco. Omnivore Books, Celia Sack. The store is Omnivore Books in San Francisco, and the owner is Celia Sack. Celia, it's good to have you with us. First of all, the bookstore. You advertise as basically a cookbook store. Is it all cookbooks? It is. It's all books on food and drink. And about a third of it is antiquarian because I used to be a rare book specialist at an auction house. And the rest of it is all new books. Do they buy cookbooks? They do, indeed. And I think I was telling you yesterday on the phone that when you get one recipe off of the internet, it's sort of like downloading 
one person's song instead of the entire album. You really just get a you know such a small slice of what their point of view for cooking is, which is great. You know, if you need to make I don't know pecan pie and you're really specific about what you need to do. That's fine to look online, but if you really want to get someone's whole gestalt of what they love, you know, a southern chef like Edna Lewis say, and you want her whole catalog of recipes, not just the pecan pie, you're going to get so such a richer experience from the books. Plus, you know, you want room to write in them. My wife always writes the date that she made it. And what cracks me up is she always writes when the second time she makes it still great. Like it was, (laughs) (laughs) of course, you know what she hated about it and too much pepper. It was ruined. Um, You know, it's so fun to be able to look back at those and remember what you've made from a book and then go, you know, I really like this person flavor profile or they always put too much salt in things so I'm going to put a little less in each recipe you really get to know them almost like a friend let me ask you this how do you well actually the question sort of in two parts one how do you curate a cookbook collection and two you know we've talked to the owner of somebody who sells nothing but mysteries and we said how do you know it's a good mystery how do you know it's a well-written recipe Oh, that's a really good question. So as for curating, the way that I curate my shop is books that I really trust and authors I really trust. So I don't actually have a lot of Food Network authors in there, except like Ina Garten. Her books are always really trustworthy because the woman who helps her write them, Julia Tershin, is very, very meticulous about testing and recipes. I love books that are by authors who that's their whole job is to write cookbooks rather than their job is to own a restaurant and the recipes are on the side, though those are sometimes good too. But, you know, just choosing books that, you know, the author has really, really done their homework and really tested the recipes and knows what they're doing. So that's how I curate the shop. And I also really try to have a strong section of international books. I really want people to expand their breadth of experimentation. And I also want different communities, like say the Filipino community, to feel really represented there. Like they have a choice. There's not just one or two, but I've got them on, you know, vegetarian Filipino and vegan Filipino and just a whole wide range of regional Filipino. So they can really choose from those. I think that's really, really important for everyone to have a say. As far as what makes a good recipe, it's clearness, it's thoughtfulness, it's reference to whatever culture it's from. It doesn't always have to be traditional. It can be a play on something, but it needs to be really well tested. That's the main thing and very clear. So in some ways you like the recipes to be annotated the same way a book about a culture or a book about folk tales or what have you would be annotated. Ideally. Yeah. That's great. And you know, it's really interesting. I find that there's certain authors who study different cultures but are not from that culture. Like Paula Wolfert wrote about a very famous book on Moroccan cooking, Claudia Rodin on Spanish cooking, Diana Kennedy on Mexican. And for them, they want to stay really, really traditional. They want to respect the culture. They want to do it just right. And they go into households of of the people who live there and learn from the grandmothers how to do it and are really, really respectful of that. 
as opposed to people who are actually now we're seeing a lot more of books from people who are actually from those countries and they have a comfort level with it and a security so they can riff they don't feel like anybody's going to be questioning their commitment to the traditions of their culture. So for Moroccan, there's a guy named Murad Lalou who does modern Moroccan or Mexican. There are lots of now, finally, Mexican cookbook authors who really can play on the traditions and make something new. So that's been kind of interesting to see, too. Celia, when people walk into what I would call a traditional bookstore, They'll often walk out with five or six books. Mm -hmm. Are people coming into Omnivore and walking out with five or six different cookbooks? You wouldn't believe. Yes. <laughs> we call them the pilers. <laughs> people will come up with a whole pile and they'll say, you know, my husband's going to kill me if I said he'll kill me if I buy one more cookbook. And I always say, get a new husband because <laughs> <laughs> this is much more important. <laughs> but yeah, people, people will, will come up with a whole pile for, you know, this is my inspiration this season. I'm, I'm going to dig into these and people do. It's wonderful. <laughs> How do you keep an eye on the market? How do you know what's coming? What's the community like? It's gotten harder for me because a lot of it is online. They used to send out printed catalogs, which I'm much more comfortable with going through and dog earing and making notes and checking out other titles. So that's a drag. But I hear about it. There's actually, there's a great blog called, it's a newsletter called Dirty no, is it 30 pages? Shoot, now I can't remember what it's called. A woman named Paula Forbes, who does a bi-weekly cookbook newsletter. And so I read that and see what's coming out and what deals have been made for cookbooks who are coming. I just hear about them through radio shows, through the New York Times, through my publishers, just getting the catalogs and I'll see what's coming out and get an idea from that. You mentioned that you have a large section of antiquarian cookbooks. I'm curious in my 19 years of doing Good Morning America, and we did a lot of cookbooks and a lot of chefs, the thing that I saw that evolved was how much better the photography became in cookbooks. You wanted to reach out and touch the dish. The photography was so wonderful. But what's changed over the years and improved and made cookbooks better? Well... You know, when cookbooks were very first coming out, they were really for royal households and for the help to read them. After World War One, when service sort of went away, servants went away, suddenly cookbooks had to have ingredient lists and quantities. And that was really new. Before that, it would mm. just say, like, bake a batter or bake and expect the person cooking to know what that meant. So I think what's evolved actually more and more is teaching people techniques and how to cook and really being explicit about, I mean, I'm amazed now that cookbooks say, you know, always start with a quarter tablespoon of olive oil in a pan before you start sauteing something. Whereas, you know, I never, I mean, it's just a glug of olive oil. It's, you know, I, I never really thought that you needed that. But people do. People are, and especially during the pandemic, I learned that because people were suddenly having to cook for the first time. I love that. I love being able to lead people to the cookbook that's going to get them excited about cooking and interested rather than the cookbook that's going to make them go, you know, oh, this is simple, but it's not at all. And I, I don't want to, it's too much for me. So I think that's what's one of the th major things that has evolved is just the specificity with which the cookbooks describe technique and ingredients and quantities. So if I came to you and said, Celia, I burn water. <laughs> Help! 
<laughs> what is the best Fisher Price's My First Cookbook that you okay. recommend to somebody? So there are actually two that I love. One is called Kitchen Simple by James Peterson, which has been out for quite a number of years. And it's true. I often, I would find people would say that and I'd say, oh, this is a really easy one. And I'll open it up. And the first recipe is like kimchi fried rice with, you know, it's some complicated thing that people are like, no. So his book, you open it up and it actually is, this is how to mash a potato or this is how to sear a steak. It's just super, super simple. The other one is Julia Tertian, who I mentioned before, co-writes all of Ina Garten's books. And she's got this great book called Small Victories. And what I love is that the recipes actually just have usually two words like patatas bravas or... I don't know, um, mama's spaghetti, you know, something, something very easy sounding. And they actually are really easy with spinoffs below so that if you want to play with it, you can. Oh, but also really great techniques that are the small victories. One of the ones is when you're taking the corn off the cob, always break the cob in half so that it'll stand flat on a surface. One of my favorite authors of all time is Pat Conroy. And people don't realize mm -hmm. Pat wrote a cookbook. Yes. And a couple of things about it. First of all, his wife came to him, his then wife came to him and said, I'm going to law school. You're going to have to learn to cook. And he went to his local bookstore and he said, I need a cookbook. And the owner of the store said, I don't carry cookbooks, but here's something by, what was it, Kate? Lescoffier was his name. Uh, yeah. Oh, wow. And, uh, <laughs> yes. and so Pat had to start with the most sophisticated which started out telling him that he had to make his own chicken stock and beef stock and whatever. <laughs> and so he learned. He did that. He did it. Wow. Which is quite commendable. Yes. But Pat always thought that the best cookbooks come with those round spirals in them. Mm -hmm. that they come from PTAs yeah. or women's clubs in South Carolina or whatever. Do you carry those? I was just going to say South Carolina has quite a few of those, the community cookbooks. And throughout the South, those are especially prevalent and in the Midwest. And yes, it's true. They're often a collection of either a church or a school or, you know, they're charity cookbooks. A few years ago, I got a fabulous collection of about 900 of them that were all pre-1920s. Whoa, wow. Some of them were the first charity cookbook of their state from the 1870s and 80s. And they were, they're fascinating, especially if you look at the game section and the preserving sections, because those really show you what was local to the place at the time. So you'll find nasturtium salad or canvas back duck in Maryland or terrapin, their turtle. It's really fascinating to look at what was local to that place at the time that book was published. So I know antiquarian booksellers, they sell an antiquarian book, whoever gets it and they put it in the case and nobody touches it because it's a thing of the whatever of the blah. Mm -hmm. But for an antique cookbook, is it sold to be admired or is it sold to be used and loved? Admired. Okay. And sort of like rare children's books, the category is very difficult to find in nice condition because mm. so many people used them. In fact, I had for a while a beautiful like 1943 copy of The Joy of Cooking that had no splatters in it at all. And I always, would always say, I always feel so sorry for the husband who, whose wife owned this book because he obviously was never cooked for. <laughs> you guys at home can't see it, but I'm holding up my copy of The Joy of Cooking, which looks like I sleep with it. <laughs> well, it's in such bad shape. This week, I finally got in and immediately sold the very first 
first edition of that book, which was 1931. Wow. She self-published only 3,000 copies of it. And I and another cookbook dealer were sort of researching, apparently a number of copies have handwritten corrections in them. Ah. And mine on several of the recipes, but my copy did not, which means they probably, Irma Rombauer, who wrote it, probably distributed a number of them before realizing that there were some errors and then they hand corrected the rest of them. So I was explaining to the guy who bought it and he bought it as a wedding present for his boyfriend who had just proposed to him and they're not getting married for another year. And he bought it for that for next year. <laughs> we were looking at it, And I was saying, you know, this is probably actually an earlier copy than the copies that have the corrections because it went out of their garage first. And then they probably had to go through the rest of them and correct them. But the history of that book is just amazing. Dare I ask what it sold for? Uh, I sold it for $2,750. Wow. And it was a beautiful copy. It had a few splatters in it, but otherwise it was really nice. And it had a handwritten recipe for lemon chiffon pie in the back that someone had put in. What's the first cookbook that we have record of that was ever published? Oh, I hate that question because I can never remember. (laughs) (laughs) Well, roughly how far back does it go? Uh, Roughly 1,500. Wow. Whoa. Yes. Bartolomeo, I think. Scopi. Well, I I have a copy of Scopi, and it's 15... 10 or something like that. And it's the first illustration of a fork ever. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Crazy. (laughs) So that's one of the earliest. That's awesome. Are you a good cook? I am. People sometimes ask me if I like to cook and I always say, you know, this would be a terrible career to have chosen for myself if I didn't like to cook. Well, no, because I work for many chefs and, you know, women and men marry them thinking that they're going to eat these delicious, fabulous home-cooked meals on Friday, Saturday, whatever they're home. They're never home, by the way. Listeners at home, they're never home. Don't marry them. But (laughs) when they do get home, they don't want to cook. No, no. They're like, get that pan out of my face. But I love to, I love cooking and I cook a lot. I actually don't use cookbooks as much as I probably should because I know so much about cooking and I sort of lean on the techniques that I know and I riff on them. But once in a while, something great will come out. Like I love Alison Roman's cookbooks, uh, Nothing Fancy and Dining In. And she has a baking book coming out next year. And what I love about her books is she always has ingredient combinations that I would not have thought of on my own. For me, that's a really useful cookbook because I can think of a lot on my own, but she has combos like there's a um, spaghetti that she makes with crispy squid and lemon. And she actually slices up the lemon in small segments and cooks those with everything, Mm. including the rock. Mm. And then the squid you cook first and let all the juices flow out. And then it just gets really crispy and sort of caramelized. And then you caramelize the onion. I mean, excuse me, the lemons with it. And it's fantastic. And it just wouldn't have occurred to me to cook it that way or to add whole pieces of lemon. Celia, I can't let you go without talking about Julia, Julia Child who I had a chance to work with for many years and who I dearly, dearly love. You're so lucky. And I had a chance to introduce her once at a dinner where she was being honored. And I said that I thought she changed the world, that when the French chef came out, at that time, what was considered exotic was hamburger helper in the grocery store. That's right. (laughs) And yet she introduced America to a whole different way of looking at food, 
not just making food, but really cooking and being creative. Do you think she changed America's attitude toward food and toward cooking? I do. I do. And she had one partner in that who was very, very important. And that was Chuck Williams, who started Williams Sonoma right at the same time that Master of the Art of French Cooking came out, which was 1961. He was from Jacksonville, Florida, which is where my parents are from. And he started this great cookware store just at the right time because Julia Child was finally talking about French food and copper pans and whisks and just you know, how to really commit yourself to this wonderful, wonderful food that could be slow, all the butter, you know, she had all the ingredients, but he had all the cookware. And together, the two of them, I think, really changed America and made it possible for people to just pull back and start cooking again, like they used to before mass transportation and mass refrigeration, when they were getting things from the garden, when they were getting things from the butcher and the fishmonger, and actually going back to the foods that they had probably grown up with, with their grandparents. It's amazing you should mention that because my dinner partner, sitting to my right at this dinner when I introduced Julia, Mm -hmm. was a very quiet, unassuming man. And he mentioned his name. His last name was Williams. Williams. Mm-hmm. And, and he mentioned that he was actually from Sonoma County and in California. Mm. And all of a sudden, a light bulb went off in my head. And I said, do you own Williams Sonoma? Well, yes, he said. And I thought, oh, wow. Oh, great. Wow. Great. And, and he told me that story about how he had a hardware store. He said, I didn't Mm -hmm. like to travel. I was selling snow shovels. And Julia Child, I I mentioned once I was going to France, and Julia Child said, you know, you must look at the the, uh, copper pans in France. And he said, I started to import this stuff. And I worked with Julia, and the rest is history. That's great. I had no idea that she had influenced him to start selling that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, given Julia, I have no I have no doubt she twisted his arm. I also think the Food Network would not exist without her. And listeners, if you haven't gotten a chance to watch the first series of her show, which is really the first cooking show that there ever was, she drops things, she makes mistakes. It is the most human cooking show. They would never let any of that happen today. It's all very cosmetic, but mm-hmm. she was. it was the most human cooking show I've ever seen. And actually, I have this photograph of all these guys, these women and guys under the counter, handing her things so great. below her Such waist. Great picture. <laughs> I know. Tell her the McDonald's story. Tell her the McDonald's story. So we were shooting a piece in Minneapolis for GMA. Katie and I were. The camera guy is a guy named Tommy Kay, who is one of the best that ABC has. I was telling Julia's stories, and there are so many. And Tommy told me his favorite. And he had shot a piece with Julia for GMA. The crew had made reservations. Uh, I, I don't know the names of chefs, I apologize. But the crew had made reservations at some restaurant. And where Julia, when they finished the shoot and she heard that's where they were going to go to dinner, she said, I just don't like his cooking. And so Tommy said, well, what are we going to do? We got reservations. And Julia said, let's stop by McDonald's. And they went, they went into the, to the uh, drive through lane and they, and they ordered and, and in the back seat into the microphone at the drive through lane, you hear, please tell them I want my French fries crisp. 
Julia Child wants her French fries crisp. Whereupon, whereupon they got crisp French fries. And as Tommy said, as everybody in the restaurant, for somehow, I don't know. They drove out. Their nose against the glass watching Julia Child drive out of the of the drive. Oh, that, yeah, that's gold. Isn't that a wonderful story? That is Brilliant. gold. I love it. If there had been phones, by the way, it would have just been. Oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, but that was her. <laughs> She's the most unassuming, most wonderful Amazing. human being. Yeah. Right. Oh. Fabulous. She's, she was incredible. But yes, Chuck, you're absolutely right. She 100% changed America. She did. We did a show with her once in France at Clos de Vougeot, which is a, a rather prominent vineyard there. We did a Good Morning America there. And because Good Morning America starts at 7 a.m., we did the show at 1 p.m. French time mm-hmm. so that it would be on in the morning in, in the United States. And Julie was making a coca vin. And there was, first of all, the vineyard got out the good stuff. And secondly, there was a good bit of wine in her recipe. And mm-hmm. by the time we got to air, she had had quite <laughs> a few glasses of wine. And when we oh, got on the air, we had, I don't know, five minutes for the segment or whatever. And Julia's saying, you, you must put in the blood of the chicken, pouring in more wine. And more blood of the chicken. And it was, the, the, it was so wine heavy. There was a lot more vat than there was Coke in, in the recipe. And, and she was a delight all, all during the show because she was just oh, feeling God. no pain. None at all. Sounds so fabulous. I'm sure you weren't either. That just sounds great. One of my one of my favorite human beings of all time, oh, and who oh, I suspect oh, her I, I suspect her cookbooks sell still well in your store. Very well. We always have a good pile of them on one of the tables. That being said, listeners, she is not Fisher Price's my first cookbook. No, no. I would just so you know, like no. work towards <laughs> Julia. Yes. Don't start there. That's right. That's right. Julia, may you rest in peace. Yes. She was a wonderful, wonderful human being. For sure. Celia Sack, we could talk to you all day long. You are like a walking encyclopedia of cookbooks. Well, I hope I get to meet y'all someday. Come out to San Francisco. We will. We will make an effort. Good. (laughs) The store is on Cesar Chavez Street, not far from Mission Street in San Francisco. Celia Sack is there, and if you get a chance to talk to her, I suspect it'll take you a while to get out of the store. (laughs) All the best to you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. You You too, Charlie. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? 
In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. So, some rapid-fire questions, particularly aimed at someone who knows cookbooks so well. So, Kate, why don't you start? Baking or cooking? Cooking. Why? Because uh, I'm not a science person. I don't like to follow directions. I don't like authority. That's why I own my own business. So, (laughs) don't tell me what to do. And baking is all about exact directions. And no. Do you put your stuffing inside or outside the turkey? Inside. Inside. And I love to make a good, like with sweet and savory, almost Sephardic flavors, pistachios and walnuts and dates and bread. And, oh, it's so good. You know, balsamic. Give it that nice sweet and tart combination. Save me a place at the table. (laughs) My favorite question in this, as far as I'm concerned, separates really intelligent people from not so intelligent people. No pressure. The cranberry sauce. Is it real cranberry sauce? Or is it cranberry jelly that has ridges? Oh, no. It's real cranberry sauce with juniper berries in it. I have to admit, I don't make it. That's one that Paula, my wife, always makes. So I do the stuffing. She does the cranberry sauce. And it's a whole long thing. It's from a recipe from a place called Canal House. And it's it's wonderful. Let me just say that my family is so married to the ridges. (laughs) I thought that was how cranberry sauce came out when we made it. I thought that that was the final product. Well, my family is into the little marshmallows on the sweet potatoes. So, Uh, you know, we're not totally all all in all the time. Cranberry sauce, the reason it has those ridges is so that you can cut it perfectly well. (laughs) You don't know how to cut cranberry sauce made with the juniper bushes and the poison ivy or whatever (laughs) it was that just went through. That's what happens when he cooks. You should see him try to put a whole bush into a pot. Okay. Lesser known cookbook you give to your friends who cook. Ah, there's a really great one that came out this year called The Nutmeg Trail. And it's wonderful. It talks all about spices and particularly nutmeg spices and the trail that they've taken across South Asia and with recipes to match. And just a wonderful book that hasn't gotten the press that it deserves. You're feeling really lousy and you've had a terrible day. So you make yourself? Tortellini alla panna. <laughs> Tortellini with cream and a few peas. I always keep pancetta in the freezer. And it, then I always have it. <laughs> that, my friends, is the sign of a nerdy chef. If you don't keep emergency, it's not emergency dehydrated potatoes in a box. No, no. Pancetta, just take it out, cut it into cubes, throw it in the pan. And to your opinion, the greatest cookbook ever. Zuni Cafe Cookbook by Judy Rogers. She was such a great writer. It tells you why you're doing what you're doing in the kitchen in this poetic yet concise way that people take that book to bed with them to read. It's wonderful. It it leads you, you, you can, it gives you sort of the key to every other cookbook and recipe because it tells you techniques, not just recipes, but techniques that you can memorize and then use whenever you need to. Cookbook on your shelf that is falling apart and in incredibly sad shape, but you won't get rid of it. The New Basics cookbook. It's, uh, the workman did a terrible job with that 
glue and it's always falling apart. But I always have to take it out to remember certain recipes in there. There's a sea bass with soy braise that is so good in there. And yeah, it's all broken and falling out. Oh, I haven't tried that one yet. It's so good. And final question, Celia, if I didn't own a bookstore, that specializes in cookbooks, what would I be doing? I would own a bookstore that specializes in natural history. <laughs> That's my <laughs> You are committed to it. We hope you have a great Thanksgiving or had a great Thanksgiving, depending on when people listen to this. But it's just such a delight to talk to you. And I really look forward when we're in San Francisco to come visit uh, Omnivore Books. Please do. Mostly because I don't cook much. I Mostly look forward to coming to see you, but I look forward to the bookstore as well. Before you give us your code, I will say my mother worked a lot at night when I was in high school, and my choices were six McNuggets or nine McNuggets, <laughs> a big pile of scrambled eggs, <laughs> or a grilled cheese sandwich. Mm. Um, now, if he made you a big pile of scrambled eggs, that was all you got. You just got a big <laughs> of scrambled eggs and you were like oh awesome lots of protein i have to say when i was a kid i went through like a year of having grilled cheese pretty much every night so and i loved it so i still that's one of my favorite comfort foods so there the rapid fire questions with celia sack and as we mentioned you can find her and the omnivore bookstore on caesar chavez street in san francisco so kate if you'll remind us who makes this podcast possible and then we'll have Celia take us off the air. Well, lots of people make this podcast possible. I want to say one more thing. Happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy your trip to Fan Naps. And next week, we will be talking to Nelson DeMille. And you're going to want to tune in for that. His new book is The Maze. Okay, people who make the show responsible and then Celia's deep thought. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we want to give special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. Okay, a reminder that, especially this Thanksgiving, food is what brings everyone together. And around the world, food is what connects all cultures to one another and all humans to one another. And we're all humans. So it's really good to remember when you're eating food, it all came from somewhere. Somebody made it, somebody grew it. And the recipes have influences from all over the world. And we're all just very connected to one another. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.